Welcome to the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services In Conversations with podcast series on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Hello, everyone. Welcome to UBS On Air. My name is Sarah Solomon, and I am a senior strategist on the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services team at UBS. The mission of our group is to serve as a thought partner for exceptional families. We understand that our clients' needs extend beyond the purely financial, so we take a strategic and sustainable approach to managing their wealth for continuity. We work with our clients to get to the heart of what is most important to them and help align their passions with charitable giving opportunities that achieve their philanthropic goals. An important step in identifying where our passions lie and how to best meet our goals is to learn from others and hear stories from like-minded philanthropists. Today, I'm so happy to be joined by Lisa Zola Greer. Lisa is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, convener, and the author of the best-selling book, Philanthropy Revolution. Over the last decade, The Greer Home in Beverly Hills has been home to nearly 200 charitable salons and events connecting nonprofits with donors and the community. In 2020, Lisa was appointed by the Speaker of the California State Assembly as a commissioner of the California State Commission on the Status of Women and Girls. In addition, Lisa sits on the board of the New Israel Fund and serves on the executive committee of the Cedars-Sinai Board of Governors. She has also served as commissioner and chair of the Beverly Hills Cultural Heritage Commission and trustee of the Jewish Community Foundation of Los Angeles and is a board member of many organizations. She was also recently featured in Stanford's Social Innovation Review. Earlier in her career, Lisa was a studio executive at NBC and Universal Studios, and she founded and led several companies, including a management consulting and strategic advisory firm specializing in digital media and the entertainment business. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, let's get started. To begin, I want to ask you about your personal philanthropic journey. Having read your book, it's apparent that you have so much experience sharing your wealth to make a difference for others. In thinking about your personal philanthropy, what is the most challenging aspect of being a donor and what has been the most gratifying? So um, thank you for that question. The most challenging aspect has been, as a business person, walking into an industry and sector that uh, although... The sector does wonderful things and is so important for really everyday life. Uh, but business and and nonprofits, for some reason, they think business is kind of a dirty word. And so a lot of pieces to that uh, interaction with nonprofits that we expected and I would have expected as a new philanthropist about 10 years ago uh, were just not there, like everything from not being like people not saying thank you to uh, to people getting my name wrong, to people assuming that I want to be thanked 10 times and, and make me come to events to be thanked, and just lots of things that felt very, very awkward. So that was um, 
very challenging to continue giving despite those things going on. Um, and I didn't feel like it was getting any better as time went on. So that's why I'm um, here today and why I wrote a book to try and help. Uh, well, a couple reasons. One is to help nonprofits do better vis-a-vis donors, but also to help donors realize that it's not just them, because for a long time I felt like I was the only person who was experiencing this, and I've since found out that donors uh, all over have had these kinds of experiences, but really would prefer not to talk about them. So I uh, decided to do that. Um, I would say the most um, I would say a productive, beneficial, satisfying uh, uh, encounter I had. There were quite a few, but one of them is uh, uh, it's in the book that you've read, and it's about an organization where I, when we first started giving, we decided that we were going to uh, create different pockets for the different uh, monies that we wanted to give. And so we did two large donations initially, uh, one to uh, Cedars-Sinai Hospital uh, to benefit uh, research in the genetic piece of Crohn's disease, because my husband has had that for uh, many, many years and wants to make sure that people hopefully in the future don't have to go through that. Uh, I gave to our synagogue to uh, end the capital campaign, uh, took the final amount of money that was a capital campaign that uh, was restoring um, our sanctuary at our synagogue. And uh, so we had done that. And then the next round after that, and those were strange experiences that you can read about in the book. But after that, we decided, let's kind of figure out these different areas where we want to give. And so I said, let's, uh, and I'm sure many of your listeners would um, probably be doing the same thing. And and I really didn't have, there wasn't a guidebook on how to do this per se, uh, but we did talk to a few people who had been donors for longer than us and kind of got opinions, but a lot of it was just based on logic. So we said, let's do something that is, it, our categories were medical, which we had already done, uh, the local synagogue, which we had already done. Uh, we are involved in work in Israel. Um, like I said, I'm on the board of the New Israel Fund. So uh, we wanted to do something that was promoting democracy in Israel. That's what our, our thing was. Uh, and a lot of our speakers were about. We also wanted to do something in uh, the like the global south, so something that was internationally focused, but was to help people in places like uh, Africa and um, you know other areas where there were there were issues. And then we wanted to do something, or I wanted to do something. Josh agreed, but doing something local. And it was important for us to do something that would really help our community that we see every day. And so I went to. So I decided I wanted to do something local, and at that point, about 10 years ago, there was a a big crisis in food uh, pantries were uh, basically running out of food about midway during the month, and I was reading a lot about that in our community and in Los Angeles. And so I thought, well, who is the best person to talk to about trying to help solve that? Uh, so I was introduced to a man named David Levinson, who ran something called Big Sunday, uh, which is originally was a once-a-year Sunday thing, and now it's, they do work all every day. And I knew that he had a lot of work with, did a lot of work with people who were underserved and people who needed food. So I called him and I introduced myself, and uh, we had some mutual friends, which made it a little easier. I invited him over to the house. Uh, he had asked if, if we could meet in person, which back in those days we could. And I asked him a very simple question to me, which was, what would it take to feed everybody who's hungry in Los Angeles for three months? And I just made up the three months. It just sounded like a reasonable amount of time. And I wanted to just figure out what that would be. And I thought, maybe it will cost $100,000, $50,000. I don't know, but I figured he would know. 
And he said, fine, but I don't know the answer. And, you know, thank you for offering to do this, but I will find out the answer, but I need to go back and put pen to paper and do some research. And I said, fine. So a couple of weeks later, he called me and he said, I have your answer. And I said, great, how much does it cost? And he said, well, I need to come and talk to you about that. And I thought, uh-oh, is it going to be way more than I thought? You know, what is it? Fine. He comes over to our, our home and he said, I have the answer. I said, so what's the answer? You know, how much is it? And he said, I'm not going to tell you that because that's irrelevant. Uh, instead, we need to figure out, uh, we, I, I, I propose, and I think it would be much better if we had, if we created a program that was sustainable, uh, that basically kept going on almost on its own, that we could fund, which was in the form of, bringing somebody in to run a new program that we created called the End of the Month Club, which still exists today. We still fund it, although they're more on their feet than they were, and so we actually get to fund even a little bit less, and, and it still continues. And the idea was to mobilize the city, uh, everybody from people in churches and, and synagogues to schools to even uh, people in Hollywood on, on movie sets, uh, to contribute to food pantries, uh, contribute a certain item in a certain month. And a lot of schools did this. It became really a community program, like I said, which still exists today. And so they might say, let's do, we, we need tuna, as much tuna, cans of tuna as we can do for these three food pantries for the month of May. And then people would have something very specific they could contribute. And if they didn't want to contribute the actual item, if that was a hassle, they could contribute money that would then be turned immediately into uh, that product, uh, you know, whatever the canned good was. And it was hugely successful. Uh, and like I said, it continues today. If the amount of money that I've spent on it is way less right now and that, that they've spent on it over the last uh, 10 years, that total amount of money is actually less than the amount that I thought it was going to take for just three months. So I just love that story, and it's extremely gratifying. Around Thanksgiving, they have a much longer list, and they feed tens of thousands of people, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful feeling. So those are my examples. I love that, Lisa. What stands out responses to the question of the challenges and the most gratifying is on the challenging side that it wasn't just you. And thanks for writing your book so others will know that too. And then on the gratifying side, I noted the sustainable solutions, mobilizing others and community-based. I want to ask you another question. Let's talk about the power dynamics in philanthropy. The elephant in the room is money. Fundraisers are doing their dance to court donors, and donors are feeling obligated to engage with nonprofits on the terms set out by traditional fundraising approaches. How do you suggest that donors and philanthropists go about creating authentic relationships with nonprofits and fundraisers? So that's the big question, and that's uh, another one of the main other reasons that I wrote the book and that I'm now helping nonprofits all over the world, really. All, all different nonprofits have asked for this help. I think there's been a desire to have those authentic relationships, but, but nonprofit leaders and fundraisers specifically just didn't know how because they've been trained, uh, and we actually trace this back with an academic uh, who teaches the history of philanthropy in, um, in Kent in the UK. She traced it back and found out that Really, the basic rules of how to do fundraising and the words that are used and the ask and the time frame and the pandering and all of that was created in the early 1900s by uh, about four uh, industrialists in the United States who also started some of the first big foundations. 
And really, the shocking thing, and I guess this, but I now found out it's true, really hasn't been changed uh, in 100 plus years. It's, people have been doing this the same way. And the world has changed. People have changed. And now I believe that every single person is a donor. Almost everybody, if not everybody, has given something at some point. You've given to your PTA. You've given to uh, your, you know, a, a coat drive, or you've given to your local chamber of commerce, whatever it is. And, and, but unfortunately, they feel like they're not donors. And so the nonprofit uh, leaders and the fundraisers see themselves as a different, almost a different species than a donor, and they are deferential to donors. I think some of that started maybe, you know, maybe that started 100 years ago, this deferential piece, which doesn't need to be there. There are some donors who are insistent that things be done their way, and they'll say, you have to do this program and make it for me, and I don't care what you do at your uh, philanthropy, at your your nonprofit. I, I'm, I'm going to give you the money if you do exactly what I say. That's a very, very, very small number of the of people who give. And most people who give really want to give because for lots of different reasons, but one of the main reasons is it feels really good to give. It's a much more satisfying life if you are giving something. Uh, it's, it's being part of a community and being part of the world. And so it, it's not about demanding. So for the rest of us donors to be treated as if we were these kind of scary, pushy people is, is just not right. And so in the book, I make it clear that as a donor, we actually want authenticity. And the other donors that I know feel the same way, that they want honesty and truth and authenticity. And if you're having a hard time, tell me, because I, and, I, I'm here to help. I'm not here to beat you up because you're having a hard time. And in fact, if you tell me that you're not having a hard time, that everything's been perfect for 10 years, I know that you're... You're, you're editing the conversation and you're not telling me the truth. And then I don't trust you. And then I don't want to give to you because I don't trust you. So I would rather it was a conversation that was completely honest. So if somebody's looking for money, you say, and, and this is, I know, a big change for people, but I think it's, it's pretty easy to do once you get used to it. Instead of saying, uh, a fundraiser coming to you as a donor and saying, I would like to talk to you about supporting our organization, uh, it, you don't know what support means. They mean money, usually. I think support might mean that it, they want me to give them some other names. They want me to help them with some sort of advice. They, I, I don't know what it is, but I don't always believe that it's just money because they don't say it's about money. So if they just say, we'd like to talk to you about financially supporting our organization, then it's out there right at the beginning. But one of the things that I learned is that, is that most fundraisers are uncomfortable, if not many or most, are uncomfortable about talking about money, which just seems so, uh, you know, such the opposite of what you would expect. It's very, um, very strange, but they, they really are. In fact, 80% of fundraisers have said in a recent study that they're uncomfortable about asking for operational money uh, in any way. So uh, I, I translate that to, to they make it sound like they're working for free. They think the donor wants to think they're working for free. And I don't know any donors that want to sit at a table with uh, people who are running an organization and think that they they work for free or they're starving. That's just crazy. So I'm I, they they need to start off by having those conversations, and we as donors need to encourage that kind of change of behavior, where they're actually having an honest relationship with us. Tell us the good, the bad, the ugly. We're here to help. We're here for the long term with your organization. And especially now, when about 60% of donors today, maybe even more, are uh, what they call FGWs, or first-generation wealthy donors. So 
that's a big change. That the old story about old money and new money and new money being crass and all of that—that's gone. This is the more people are first-generation donors than are not, and the people who are second or third or fourth-generation donors have a much more modern point of view. Um, and this kind of authenticity will really um, resonate and also make the organization stronger if that's really part of the conversation. I love your perspective from both the donor side and the benefit to organizations and fundraisers if we can just acknowledge what support means. The next question I want to ask you is about a concept that donors have been asking more and more about, which is impact measurement. And yet in 2020, we saw donors have more trust in organizations to use money for the highest and best use without as much deliberation on how the funds would be used. What are your thoughts on how closely or loosely donors should be focused on impact measurement? So uh, that is something that's, that's been obviously talked about a lot for a long time. And I think that what it boils down to is this relationship. If you have a relationship where you trust somebody, you're going to give them a lot more leeway than if you don't. So the the constant constant metrics and constant, you know, we've done this, we've done that, here's your numbers, uh, almost babysitting donors on a monthly basis in some cases, in some cases even more. I, I've been on boards where board members walk into the offices and demand attention from staff members, which is just not okay. Uh, you know, let them do their work. But if, if you trust the organization, you're not going to have those questions. And if the organization is updating you in some regular way on what their impact is, then you're good to go. I'm good to go. I think most people I am are, are happy with that. If the organization doesn't have a culture of, of keeping you updated or, or if they have a culture of keeping you updated only with the good stuff and not telling you the other things that are happening, then you're not going to, the minute you find that out, you're not going to trust them. And so it's really not down to the, you know, kind of picayune metrics. It's all about that general, do I trust the organization? And so there is a movement to give people uh, organizations money for much longer than they used to. Uh, it, it used to be that foundations would give donors money for even a year at a time, and six months into it, they're already preparing for the next year and applying, and they could never get on their feet. So there's now a movement to give money for between three and ten years, which is a long time. And if you trust the organization, you trust them to go in the field and get the work done and be accomplishing what they need to accomplish without worrying about somebody stopping them in the middle of the day when they're feeding people and, and saying, well, we need to know, uh, you know, why you spent money on, uh, you know, an extra desk for one of your staff people. That's just, that's just doesn't make any sense. And it's also not fair to the organization at all. So, so again, it's not about those little things. It's about do what you need to accomplish the mission. That's what, that's what really the message I think should be. Shifting gears a little bit, at UBS, the philanthropy services team and financial advisors work with families on activating their philanthropy. Oftentimes, client families have funded either a donor-advised fund or a private foundation, often both, and they want to make meaningful gifts and solve social issues. A common scenario is that kids and grandkids of all ages young to adults, don't care about the same issues as their parents or grandparents do. 
So what suggestions do you have for current wealth holders who are reluctant to do family philanthropy because not everyone wants to focus on the same issues or might even disagree on what problems they should be dedicating family financial resources toward? So in this particular case with that question, I actually have those issues going on with my family right this very minute. It's been going on for a while. Uh, my kids, I have five kids. They all want different kinds of things. They all are different people. And uh, uh, I don't think any of them necessarily want to give. That's, that's not true. There's there's one political thing, so it's not really nonprofit, but, um, that, that my oldest daughter and I agree on, which was really cool. We were able to actually do uh, a political event together to uh, raise money to elect women to our California state legislature. So that was really awesome. Uh, in general, though, we do have different opinions. And uh, I, you know, my son sent me a, 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 an article the other day about that was really, a, I would call it radical philanthropy and uh, of what he wanted to do. And he wasn't trying to get me to do it, but he was saying, this is what I want to do. And it, I found it really over the top and distasteful. But I sent him a note and I said, okay, we agree to disagree. Uh, this is something I don't want to read any more of because I think it's too, um, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit with what I want to do to help people now. And, and he said he totally understood and that was great. And we, we kind of go on our merry way, but we do communicate to each other what we're working on. And I am able to then, my daughter works with uh, immigration reform and my oldest daughter, and I'm able to help promote her organization because uh, I know what they do. And, and we do make sure that we all know what each other are involved in. And it doesn't have to all match. But, but I'm also, feel, I also feel really good, despite the fact that they're not invested, they're not saying, Mom, we just want to keep doing what you're doing. Um, for the most part, what they're, they are doing, what I'm doing, which is they're trying to make things better. They're trying to make people's lives better. And if it's not done in the exact same way that I do it, that's okay because the sentiment is the same. And I'm very proud that my kids are all involved in some type of social justice. And they, uh, even though even though it's different across the map and the way that they do it is different, um, so so that feels really good. I do think it's very important to keep the communication going so that everybody in the family knows what each other are doing and and you get to choose do you want to be part of this one's thing or that one's thing and it, it, it feels really good that way but like I said the overriding uh, sentiment uh, is the same which is give back uh, uh, help make people's lives better all of that kind of thing so I think if we step back a little bit and, and instead of saying why won't you donate to the same uh, charity that I've been donating to we say you know can I raise kids with the same sentiment of helping? And, um, and then I think it's very successful. I love that, keeping the lines of communication open. I remember in one of our earlier conversations, you told me a story about your youngest son and how he got involved with an organization and what's transpired. Can you share that story? I can. It's, it's a little complicated, and I might actually be writing about it, because the more I think about it, the more excited I am. So uh, this is the one about the, um, uh, the folding, right? Yeah. That's the story. But yeah. So my, my son, we started Donor Advice Funds for each of our children uh, when we first became philanthropists, and I recommend that wholly to people. Uh, most people don't do this. Our little kids, uh, who are now 14, were five years old at that point, and we did start a fund for each of them. Uh, obviously, it was under our auspices, but they could actually follow along online and see where they had given money and 
it, it, it was wonderful. And we asked them to uh, spend that money that we put into the account every year. We asked them to use it on something that they had researched and something that they feel passionate about. So at the very beginning, they did things like gave to the uh, uh, the pound type, type place where we uh, a, a dog adoption organization where we had adopted our dogs, which was lovely. And I actually uh, we actually had them. We got the donor advice fund check and were able to take it over to this place. Uh, they let us do that, and so they got to be there with the dogs and, and show what they were doing and actually see what what where this money went. And that was wonderful. And then they kind of wanted to give money to things where they would get something in return. So as they became like seven or eight years old, they wanted to give to something like the World Wildlife Federation where they had a program where you got stuffed animals based on, uh, different animals based on the amount of money you gave. So they ended up with a boatload of stuffed animals and that was super exciting. And okay, fine, that's fine and that's age appropriate. But now uh, our son is 14 and he spends a lot of time doing uh, 3D printing. He's really kind of an expert in that, and he does a lot of work with technology, which I'm sure many of the listeners' uh, families do or kids do. And part of that is something that he learned about a few years ago called Folding at Home, which is an organization that's now based at uh, WashU at St. Louis, uh, uh, but has was created at Stanford about 20 years ago. And what they do is, uh, and he has computers all over his office and in his closet, and his office, his room, and his closet, and where he does homework. And computers are doing all different things. They're doing 3D printing. They're they're doing video game stuff. They're downloading things, all sorts of things, all the time. He's just very into this, and and very good at it. So. One day I found out that he, I realized that we had to move computers in his closet because the closet was getting too hot because there were all these computers there. And I said, okay, this is really getting out of hand. Why are all these computers here? And he said, I'm doing folding at home. And I said, I don't know what that is. So he, gave, he said, well, actually, and this was at the beginning, he'd been doing it for a while, but this was at the beginning of uh, COVID. And he said, I'm working to help cure COVID. And I, I said, okay, how is that? I don't understand. How does that work? And it turns out that there is this group of uh, scientists and doctors uh, many years ago who created this organization. It's all, I don't know, I think they have like a couple of employees, but funded by lots of these universities and a lot of the big computer companies to use the excess um, uh, speed or computer ability that, that you have that you're not using. So when your computer's off, uh, what happens to the computer and the ability for it to churn data? So what they did is they created something where they said, let's do a distributed network of how we actually uh, look at things with our computer. So how do we actually churn data? How do we go through information to do it better basically better, faster, cheaper. So people would do it as volunteers. So it started off as companies would say, okay, when we're dormant in the middle of the night and the computers really aren't doing anything, we can actually put in this little program. It doesn't ruin anything, but that allows that computer's power to solve the problems that they're trying to solve. And in this case, it's looking at cells and looking at, uh, uh, looking at various chemical data to try and see how cells work. If they did that in the regular world uh, and and tried to do that you know, today, it would take, in some cases, 100 years to be able to process that information. Obviously, as we all know, during COVID and other types of crises, we don't have 100 years to figure that out. But no computer could do this. And so right now, by distributing this to thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of people's computers uh, throughout the world, 
uh, they are now, it might be America, it might be the world, I'm not sure, but they are able, they were able to create the largest supercomputer that exists in the world. And I think it is by about a factor of 10, 10 times bigger than any supercomputer anywhere because it's picking up this, um, uh, the power of all of these computers that are um, in this sort of network that are used when you're not using your computer. And they said they took that from the idea of Napster, which many of you might remember from many years ago, uh, but, but decided to do it specifically for uh, uh, innovative medical innovation. Um, and they have created also have all sorts of wonderful successes. So what happened was, and uh, to go quickly, is he sent his check. He, we, we ordered a check, uh, found out they were 501c3. Uh, I didn't do a lot of checking because he was so passionate and they're doing work on COVID, so great. We sent the check. Uh, it was sent from our donor advice fund. And I got an email from the head of it saying, we don't know who you are. Uh, we're curious and, and why you decided to send it to us. And you know, send this check to us. And I wrote back and, and, and anyway, we started talking. He found out that I worked in uh, philanthropy and they were looking to raise more money and raise more awareness. And since then, my son and this uh, medical professional, doctor, professor who runs the program now, and my 15-year-old son are talking almost every day because they're working on projects together. And that was just amazing. And the only way that happened is because that organization got the check and didn't just say, you know, oh, it's a check, whatever, you know, fine, but actually, like, sent me an email, did some research, found out how to find me and find my son. And now my son, you know, he's a donor for life. It was, it's, it's, it's an incredible, incredible experience for a kid to have. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just thrilled that it's happening and he did it on his own. Uh, and, and, you know, he's getting other kids to do it as well. So it's really terrific. That's a really neat story. What are your thoughts on junior boards? Why do nonprofits need to get younger people involved? And how do you suggest younger people advocate for themselves to have an active voice and a role on those boards? So the idea of junior boards is not exciting to me. Maybe it would work for high school students, but I think for uh, people in their 20s and early 30s, when I see a lot of boards who say, oh, we can't have them on a regular board because they can't possibly afford it, um, afford the give or get, whatever the board needs. Well, the truth of the matter is that right now, as of about two months ago, there's 618,000 millennial millionaires in the United States. I'll say the number again, 618,000 millennial millionaires, people who are millennial age and are millionaires or more. That is the same number as the total of millionaires in 1980 in the United States. So it's a lot of people. So the idea that 618,000 millennial millionaires aren't on boards or on junior boards seems sort of preposterous, doesn't it? So I am advocating that as we uh, talk about diversity on boards, we also talk about age diversity and that those younger people are part of those boards because if you want your organization to continue, you need to be harnessing the power of young people. You need to know what they want. You need to know what they're about, and you need to bring them in as donors. And what better way to do that than to have representatives of that organization on your board. Just like a school district might have, or, or uh, any, I, I know they do this with a lot of schools and a lot of other different organizations, and they'll even have a high school student uh, on the board as well, because they want somebody from the schools who can tell them what that's like. Why we don't do that on regular boards is beyond me, and to put them on a junior board where they're not part of that conversation of the big person board, to me, is like sending people to the kids' table, and I just don't think that that's reasonable. Uh, like I said, for high school, junior high school, maybe it makes sense, but 
But, but once you're out of school, we need to recognize that there's a lot of money right now that's going into donor-advised funds. There's $142 billion right now in donor-advised funds, and it's growing by about 16 18% a year. And most of that money, not all of it, but most of it is uh, staying in those funds. And the reason why, I keep hearing the reason why is, oh, those are just people who don't care about getting their money ultimately to charities, and they just want the tax deduction. I completely disagree, and I think that while there might be some people like that, most people, I think, who have their money there have just had a bad experience giving or are intimidated by giving or just don't want to think about it. And and usually I think it's because they've had – they just think it's too hard to get into these relationships where you've got to have a lunch and you've got to have these conversations. I prefer most of the time to just – research an organization on my own and send the money. And it turns out that most nonprofits don't even know what to do with that. So, but it's a, it's a fun thing to do. And I, I, I highly recommend it if you decide you want to do that. And then it's the obligation of that nonprofit to engage with you in a way that you're comfortable engaging with them and find out how they're doing so that, and what they're doing in terms of accomplishing their mission so that you can have a long-term relationship with them. Uh, but when people get money that's unsolicited and they don't follow up, it's, um, you know, you're, you're not going to get back, give to that organization ever again. So also, um, millennials need to, millennials and younger people, I actually know someone who started a, a website specifically for Gen Z kids, which are, I think, 12 to 22, something like that, to get them involved in giving and used to giving, I think is, those are wonderful things, but we have to do that to be able to sustain our organizations and help them grow. So that's, that's how I feel about that. Thank you. I, as you were talking, I was thinking about the uh, passage in your book where you were talking about pattern recognition. And if you don't fit the pattern, how confusing it is for the nonprofits. So you'll have to read the book in order to learn more about that. Lisa, any final thoughts or advice you have for our listeners as they choose to share their financial resources with others in the form of philanthropy? Well, I think that we as donors can help the nonprofits. Uh, they're not used to donors telling them anything about that didn't feel good or I didn't like that presentation. Most donors just hang up the phone or stop the meeting and don't give and they never, the, the nonprofit never hears from them again. I think it would be great if donors said, you know what, that doesn't feel right to me. I like your mission. I think what you're doing is great, but the way that you're doing this is, is it, it doesn't feel right. It, it, it feels offensive. And can I make some suggestions? And I think that would be wonderful if we did that. Or if, if I said at the times when they're, I call it pussyfooting around, asking about, you know, they don't, they're afraid to ask for money. I think now I just sort of say in a meeting, like, are you asking me for money or are you asking me for something else? Just tell me right at the beginning. And I think that works a whole lot better. So I, I recommend that that we become a little bit more active as donors in trying to help the nonprofits. And I think the nonprofits are going more than just financially, right? I think the nonprofits will really appreciate that because they really don't get feedback from donors. Uh, and a lot of that, the big kind of uber piece to that is letting the letting the nonprofits know how donors feel. How does what they do make them feel? Uh, because we all want to feel good about it. They're, the, the, the fundraiser wants to feel good about uh, bringing somebody together with a with with a mission and having everybody you know do better because of it. They want to feel good about their work and that they're actually accomplishing something. And and so if the donor and the fundraiser really have a true relationship and it's all about 
the mission and it's about doing better. And then, then all of a sudden the money becomes almost secondary. It falls into place because you're going to want to support them. So that's my recommendation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lisa. I loved our conversation and your candor and authenticity. And I know our listeners will appreciate your insights and candor on such an important topic. For more perspective, you can pick up Lisa's book. It's called Philanthropy Revolution. Thank you. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.